Good morning. Good to see you this morning. Glad to have you with us. Those of you joining us online, glad that you're here as well. I trust you had a, a great weekend, having a great weekend. Glad that we're together. I don't know where your favorite places are. Um, one of my favorite places to eat when we go out to eat is Fred's in Plant City. Amen. Amen. There you go. Yeah. About once a month, Martha and I go out to Fred's. I think there's one in Riverview, too. It's not nearly as good as the one in Plant City. Uh, we usually see Daryl and Faye when we're there at Fred's. Um, if you don't know, Fred's is a, a buffet, all-you-can-eat kind of place, you know, good country cooking kind of place. And every now and then, I get feeling like I need vegetables, so we'll go to Fred's, and Fred's has a vegetable plate, all you can eat for one low price, all the vegetables you can eat. So I get the vegetable plate, and I'll load it up with vegetables, and I'll sit down, and I'll eat it, and I'm like, okay, I'm full. But I know that from there on out, everything else is free. And I want to get my money's worth. It's a buffet, Right? And it's kind of a competition. Am I going to win today? Is Fred's going to win? Are we going to break even? And of course, I want to win. It's all you can eat. They've got all you can eat salad too, but I'm not falling for that. At <laughs> a buffet. So I, I rationalize. I say, okay, I'm just going to go back and get my favorites this time. So I go back the second time and I just get my favorite vegetables, really, really large portions of my favorite vegetables. So I sit down and I eat that plate as well. And by that time, I'm feeling miserable. <laughs> I feel terrible. But they have dessert. <laughs> and I've already paid for the dessert. I might as well eat it, right? They've got this cake. Martha calls it wedding cake. I don't know what the real name of it is, but it's good. It's great with a couple scoops of ice cream on it. So I get cake and ice cream. They've got these signs all over the place, kind of nicely saying, eat what you take. So there's a lot of pressure. You know? I've got I to finish my plate. So I, I finish the thing, and I'm feeling just terrible. And I look at Martha. She's got her little blue plate special. You know, the little tiny plate you can only go once. You know? And I'm like, why did you let me eat so much again? I don't think I can make it to the car. You have to just roll me out to the parking lot. I feel terrible. I, I'm, you know, I'm sick. And every time I, I go to Fred's, it reminds me of, we used to have cows. We had some cows. You know, we were always looking for extra space for our cattle to, to have some grass, except one little space where we kept blocked off for one steer. You know, we kept one steer in one very small place, where he couldn't walk, certainly couldn't run, couldn't exercise at all, and we would feed him and feed him and feed him and feed him. He got fatter and fatter until he started feeding us. You know how that works, right? <laughs> and I, I think, I, I say all that to say this, I think sometimes that can happen in the church. We come and we get fed and we're fed and we're fed and we're fed, and we never move, we never exercise, we never work it off, and really it gets to a point where all that nourishment 
becomes counterproductive. It actually is not helping us as much as we think it should. Now, we're in this book of James that we have been studying. We've seen that James is really clear, really practical, I keep using that word, about how we should be living our lives. You know, when you're the brother of Jesus, you don't have to pull your punches. So in the second half of James chapter 2, James is going to tell us in no uncertain terms, it's time to get off the couch. You're going to have to start moving. You're going to have to start doing something. You're going to have to get a little bit more active than you've been. And I'm going to tell you right up front before I even start this sermon, this is a really intimidating passage. At least it is for me. It's challenging to be sure, but it's also intimidating for me. It's convicting, but even more than that, I know I'm not going to do it justice, okay? I'm going to tell you right up front, this isn't going to be a great sermon. This is not going to be good enough. Because what James has to say in the second part of chapter 2, it's life-changing stuff. And it's really important. Again, he is, um, you know, he teaches it in a way that um, it's easy to understand, but... A little harder to put into practice. Let's jump into it. James chapter 2, verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such a faith save him? Question. According to James... Can faith without deeds save a person? This is James talking. This is not Tim, okay? James is preaching this part of the sermon this morning. According to James, just yes or no, can faith without deeds save a person? No. Email James your questions. You know, your yeah, but... You know, send those emails to James this week. Don't send them to me. Because James is saying faith without deeds... That is not a saving faith. Believing something and doing nothing doesn't work. James is going to expound on that a little bit in the next verse. Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, he's going to say it again. Faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. Suppose someone comes in and they have physical needs, serious needs. They, they don't have any food. They don't have any clothes. And you say, well, I wish you well. Keep warm and well fed. That phrase, I wish you well, that was actually a thing in the first century. That was, that was a, a, a phrase that they would use quite often. It was kind of like a warm, fuzzy goodbye. It would be like us saying, hope that works out for you. Now, someone comes to you and they have these needs and your response is, yeah, I hope that works out for you. James is saying, have you really helped that person? In the same way, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. Now, he's talking about faith. And he's using these very practical examples of what faith looks like, living faith. And what he says is, Our good intentions, that's not enough. See, we try to convince ourselves sometimes that our good intentions are kind of what does it, right? I I hear something, I read something, I sit in a class, and it's so convicting. 
I hear a message and it's just so great that I, you know, I kind of pat myself on the back that, yeah, that is, I got a lot out of that. That was just really good. But if I don't ever do anything with what I heard or what I learned, am I helping anyone? Am I really helping myself? My convictions aren't going to keep anybody warm. My intentions aren't going to keep anyone fed. What we intend to do doesn't help anyone. James says it's actions that count. In the same way, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. And James says this a couple of times because he knows that we can talk a good game. He wants to be sure we understand what he's saying because he, he knows human nature. He knows us. And, and I know us. I know you. I'm talking to people I know know your Bible. You all know your Bible. You can quote Scripture. You can defend Scripture. You can argue Scripture. James says, it's not enough. Heard someone say that uh, words serve me, actions serve others. And and you need to understand, before I go any further, because I think a lot of people misunderstand this, you need to understand what it is that James is comparing here. James is not comparing faith and works. A lot of people think that he is. Well, James is putting faith over here and he's putting works over here and he's trying to compare the two and, you know, they're at odds and, you know, which is better, faith or works. That is not what James is doing here. James is comparing something. He is not comparing faith with works. What he is comparing is a living faith with a dead faith. That's the comparison that James is making. That's his focus. He's putting a living faith over here, and he's putting a dead faith over here. He says, oh, these are the things that are at odds. These are the things that can't come together. No, there, there's no competition between faith and works. Faith and works aren't at odds. Faith and works, James says, they go together. In fact, he's going to put them together in this passage like ten times. They're not in competition. What he's comparing is a living faith and a dead faith. Living faith, James says, that's accompanied by works, by doing something. Dead faith, there's no action attached to that. He's going to go on in verse 18. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I'll show you my faith by what I do. And here's like the dichotomy in the whole thing. Here, here's, here's the division that you know, we kind of run into in Christianity. People say, well, they're, they're all about works. We're all about faith. See, that, that, that's kind of a work-based group. We're, we're kind of a faith-based group. And James would say, I don't even get that. That doesn't even make sense to me. What are you talking about? Because they go together. If you have faith, you've got to have works. If you're going to claim to have faith, there's got to be some action attached to that. So James uses actions to explain his faith. And I like the phrase that he uses here, I will show you my faith by what I do. Which makes me think of Hebrews chapter 11, right? Like the definitive chapter on faith, the the hall of faith, where the writer lists all of our Old Testament heroes, and he calls them by name, and then he says why they were people of faith. By faith... You know, Abel, then he says what Abel did. By faith, Enoch, and then he 
talked about what Enoch did. By faith, you know, Noah, and by faith, Isaac, and Jacob, and Moses, all those men and women who are listed in Hebrews chapter 11 as people of great faith, their faith is explained by what they've done. And then James says, I'll I'll prove my faith to you. I'll prove it by my actions. Which we have to wonder then, could we prove our faith by our actions? If all someone knew of us was what they saw, would they know we were a Christian? Would they know we were a Jesus follower? If we didn't tell them, if they didn't know you went to church every Sunday, if they didn't see the fish on the back of your car, would they know just by what you do, not by what you say, would they know by what you do that you're a Jesus follower, that you're a believer? Would someone be able to look at you and say, wow, that guy's got to have faith. Why else would he do that? Wow, that's got to be a woman who believes in something. Why else would she do that? Something else that I I feel like I need to point out, at least go ahead and say, because I think sometimes we do this in church as well. Sometimes we act as if everyone that's out there, you know, the world's an evil place. And so somehow we sort of convince ourselves everyone that's out there is evil as well. Everybody's terrible. Everybody who's outside of Christ, they're just terrible people. See, people know that I have faith because I'm nice. That's my actions. I'm nice. Some of the nicest people I know aren't believers in Jesus. They just are. Yeah, well, I give. There's a lot of people who very adamantly claim not to believe in God, and they support great causes. They're generous. Well, I love. Are you telling me people outside these walls don't love? Yeah. Well, see, I'm going to prove my faith because I... I'm nice, I'm kind, I give, and I love. A lot of people do those things. But here's something a lot of people don't do. In fact, here's something that people outside of Christ won't do, and that is love their enemies. People outside of Jesus, they don't love their enemies. In fact, remember it was Jesus who said, even unbelievers unbelievers love those who love them. But I'm telling you, my followers... Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Jesus commands us as followers to love our enemies. To do good to those who hate us. I'm sure all of you remember the events of September 2018. At least the news. You might not remember the date, but you remember what happened. A young man by the name of Botham Jean was shot and killed while he was eating ice cream on his sofa in his apartment. The person that shot him was an off-duty police officer. Botham Jean was a black man. The police officer who shot him was a white woman. Uh, She lived on the third floor of the apartment building. He lived exactly ahead above her on the fourth floor. She came off a long shift. She was on what she thought was the fourth, third floor, but it was actually the fourth floor. She entered supposedly what she thought was her apartment. She saw a man sitting on a couch eating ice cream. She took out her gun and shot him. 
the officer, Amber Geiger, was arrested. She was eventually charged with murder. Uh, in the Convicted of murder, by the way. In the sentencing part of the trial, the family of Botham Jean was invited to address the, the woman, the police officer that took their family member's life. And I'm sure most all of you have seen the clip Botham's little brother, Brant Jean, took the stand and addressed the woman who, uh, who shot and killed his brother. I want you to take a look at that short clip. I just pulled it off YouTube. But Matt, go ahead and show that clip if we have it. This is Brant Jean addressing uh, the police officer. I don't want to say twice or for the hundredth time what you've or how much you've taken from us. I think you know that. But I just... I hope you go to God with all what all the guilt all the things the bad things you may have done in the past each and every one of us may have done something that we're not supposed to do if you truly are sorry I know I can speak for myself I I forgive you and I know if you go to God and ask Him, He will forgive you. And I don't think anyone could say it. Again, I'm speaking for myself, not even bad for my family. But I love you just like anyone else. And I'm not going to say I hope you rot and die just like my brother did, but I see I I personally want the best for you. And I, I wasn't gonna ever say this in front of my family or anyone, but I don't even want you to go to jail. I want the best for you. Because I know that's what that's exactly what both of them would want you to do. And the best would be give your life to Christ. I'm not gonna say anything else. I think giving your life to Christ would be the best thing that both of them would want you to do. Again, I love you as a person. And I don't wish anything bad on you. I don't know if this is possible, but can, can I give her a hug, please? Please? Yes.
There is no power on the face of this earth that could cause that to happen. There, there is no power on the face of this earth that would cause the brother of a murdered man to hug the person who took his life. That's God. That goes way beyond being nice. That goes way beyond being loving. You know, that's the kind of love that the world can't explain. And that's the kind of love that the world doesn't know what to do with. I mean, that young man didn't just show his faith by what he said. He showed it by what he did. And he didn't just show his faith by how he loved. He showed it by who he loved. Now, that's God. That's Jesus. That's the kind of love that we're called to show. Everybody loves somebody. As Christians, we're called to love everybody. We're called to love our enemies. We're called to love people who hate us. We're called to love our neighbors. We're called to love the poor the same way we love ourselves. Now, that's, that's weird. <laughs> that's different. That's something that, that people notice. Show me your faith without deeds, and I'll show you my faith by what I do. But James isn't finished. I'm sorry, back up, back up, verse 19. You believe that there's one God. Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. There is a temptation for us to convince ourselves that we have saving faith because our theology is right. See, our theology is right, and therefore we know that we have saving faith. I can prove my faith by my theology, and James would say, no, you can't. That's not enough. Good theology, wonderful, but it's not enough. We study the Word. We know the Word. We spend time in the Word. Excellent. But our theology doesn't prove that we have saving faith. That phrase that James uses, you believe that there is one God. You recognize that phrase, by the way? We talked about it a couple weeks ago. It comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6, the great Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God. The Lord our God is one. Now, again, that's the verse. That was there, John 3, 16. They, they prayed that in the morning. They prayed that in the evening. That was on their doorpost. You know, that's, that was their verse. The, the Lord our God is one. James says, you believe there's one true God. Good. Great. The demons believe that. Demons have good theology. Demons have great theology. They believe that there's only one God. They believe in Jesus. Remember Mark chapter 5? Jesus is approached by a man who's demon-possessed. And the demons speaking to Jesus say, What do you want of me, Jesus, Son of the Most High? They recognized who Jesus was. 
They knew that he was the son of God. They recognized him as such. James says, even the demons believe and shudder. I don't know that many Christians who shudder in the presence of God. But James wants you to know that even your theology, even if it's correct, it's not enough. So he says in verse 20, you foolish man. Pretty strong language. You foolish man, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together. Again, they weren't in conflict. There were his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. Verse 24, you see that a person is justified, I'll say it one more time, by what he does and not by faith alone. James says, you want more evidence? Let me remind you of Abraham. Now, you need to know, remember, remember who, who James is writing to? He's writing to the 12 tribes who are scattered abroad. He's writing to Jewish people. Jewish people, they loved David. They loved Moses. They revered Abraham. He was Father Abraham. He was the father of the faithful. And when someone talks about Abraham to a Jewish person, you have their attention, and you better get it right. And so James uses the example of Abraham being willing to sacrifice his son Isaac. It's in Genesis chapter 22. We know the story. God tells Abraham to sacrifice his son uh, on an altar. And Abraham builds the altar. He prepares the, the wood and he puts his son on the altar. He's prepared to kill his son. His arm is raised with a knife in his hand. And you remember the angel stops his hand. And the angel speaks to Abraham God speaking through the angel. It's in verse 12 of Genesis 22. Now I know that you fear God because you've not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham, now I know. Now I know where your faith is. Now I know that I'm more important to you than anything else. Now I know because of what you did because of your action that was the proof his willingness to sacrifice his son so James says think about that you know that story we're justified by what we do not by faith alone which let me go ahead and say this as well before you write your email <laughs> this is not a contradiction of what Paul teaches in Romans now, Paul says that we are justified by faith alone. We absolutely are, and he and James are in perfect concert here. What James is saying in context is we are justified by faith, but it is a living faith. It is an active faith. It is a faith with action involved, something that produces action. And maybe it's easy for us to sort of rationalize and say, well, of course Abraham got it right. No, he's Abraham, the father of the faithful. Look at all the ways that God blessed him. God spoke directly to Abraham. Of course, he's going to get it right. So James goes ahead, and he's going to give us a second example, another person in Scripture with a title. 
This time it's not a man known as the father of the faithful. This time it's a woman with another title. She's known as just the prostitute. Verse 25. In the same way. Oh, I'm on behind, aren't I? In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. He's going to say it again. Okay, Abraham, we get that. But don't forget about Rahab, the prostitute. Remember Joshua sent spies into the land? When the, when the authorities came looking for those spies, Rahab hid them, and she told the authorities they went that way. And then she told the spies, you better go that way. You know who else is in Hebrews chapter 11? By faith, Rahab. In fact, the Hebrew writer calls her Rahab the prostitute. Showed her faith by what she did. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Listen, I, I say this all the time. I know my audience. I know who I'm talking to. I know I'm talking to brothers and sisters with great hearts. I'm talking to brothers and sisters who, again, you know your Bible. I'm talking to brothers and sisters who want to grow closer to God, who want to better understand the heart of God. But you read James, and I think we've got to ask ourselves, is my faith growing? Is my faith growing? I've been in the kingdom a long time. Is my faith growing? And I can say, and I'm sure most of you can, well, my knowledge is growing. My understanding is growing. I can better articulate what I believe now than I could five years ago on a lot of subjects. But when I read the second half of James 2, when I start using that criteria, I've got to look at my faith in a different light. Is my faith growing? Well, what am I doing? Am I doing more than I did five years ago? Or five months ago? Am I living my life any differently? Are my actions, not just my words, are my actions pointing people to Jesus? Is my life a testimony to what I believe and who I belong to? Would people be able to look at my actions and say, there's something about that guy? Even if they're not exactly sure what it is, there's something different because he doesn't act like most people. He's got faith in something. She has faith in someone. Because just look at what they do. James chapter 2, it is a convicting passage. As I said, it's an intimidating passage, especially for us, those of us who have called ourselves Christians for quite some time. It is really convicting. Now, we're going to leave James right here for today. We're going to come back next week. Next week, we're going to pick James back up. You know the old phrase, uh, read my lips. James is going to say, hey, God, lead my lips. You need to be here. You need to be here for that one next week. But for today, we're going to leave James right here. 
And we're going to deal with the question that James is causing us to ask. What am I doing to show people that I belong to Jesus? Let's go ahead and stand up. And we're going to sing a song of encouragement. If we can help you in any way, we invite you to the front.